Second Timothy, chapter two. Second Timothy, chapter two. Last week, when <clears throat> in chapter one I introduced Second Timothy, we spoke uh, briefly about how um, the opposition Timothy is facing in Ephesus is coming mainly from inside the church. Right? We know from. Hebrews 13.23, that at some point Timothy was imprisoned for his faith, so uh, the attacks from the outside did come, but these letters were written to address the suffering Timothy would face because of the church. And so we have to face what we're seeing in this letter, each one of us, and by the Spirit of God genuinely examine ourselves. The gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ is not... A welcomed message. We know it's not a welcomed message in the world, but that doesn't necessarily change apparently in the church. Our flesh is constantly waging war against our souls, and we have to learn to resist it, to recognize that that's what's happening rather than feed it. One day, we'll be given new, redeemed bodies, but we don't have those yet. Our old nature remains even though it's been crucified and so beloved we have to know ourselves we have to recognize the voice of our flesh when it begins to talk to us and tempt us and try to draw us back to our old unredeemed way of thinking we have to realize the ways that we still personally reject the sufficiency and power of the gospel and how that causes us to push back against it even as christians and so Paul's words to Timothy mean that the minister's life, the preaching elder's life, is a life characterized by hardship. He doesn't write that so that Timothy will feel sorry for himself. He doesn't write it so that other people will feel sorry for ministers. That's not why Paul writes. He writes because of the value of the gospel we preach and the fact that it can be compromised very quickly because the ministry of it is so hard. And so recognizing how important gospel ministry is, is meant to encourage Timothy and all of God's servants ultimately to suffer for it. There is no biblical version of Christianity that avoids suffering. The hope of God's servants in suffering is remembering who God is as he has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ Through the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask you to make me rest in it today. For the sake of your name and for the sake of all who hear. Watch over everything that I am as I preach. I ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We read the first two verses here. Of 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy's power comes from grace. As Paul gently pushes him like his own son, right, back into the service of ministry, he reminds him that all he's called to do and be faithful to relies on grace to happen At all, at no point, neither for the preacher of the gospel nor any other believer is what we're called to do left in our own power to 
produce. We are always dependent on grace, always, for everything. But what God commands, God provides. The danger for us, the issue for us is to try not to outrun grace or add to grace with our effort or our insistence on action and activity. Notice what these verses imply, because this is heavy. The more faithful Timothy is, which is what Paul is calling him to be, the more trouble he will face from the church. That's why there's a call here to courage, because there's first a calling to faithfulness. And faithfulness to the gospel, even in the church, means trouble for the minister. There's no way to avoid it. The life of the faithful minister will be plagued by hardship that is relative to the level of his faithfulness. Hardship is going to come anyway. The question for the minister is, for what are you going to suffer? Why is your life as a minister going to be hard? Is the question the text, the text is asking. The more faithfulness in the church, the more opposition from the church. Why? Why is that? Why this letter because of what he's experiencing in the church, because churches are filled with people. I know this text is written to the preacher in Ephesus, but as the church, we need to listen. We have got to come to a better understanding of how our own human nature still plagues us, how it threatens our unity and threatens our love and divides us even in the church. Flesh is still battling spirit here. And I I make this kind of joke a lot, but what we need to do right now as we listen is listen for ourselves, not for the people we think need to be hearing this message, because that's what we do. If, if, If the word is you have to love one another, people start thinking, that's right, such and such should love me more. If the word is you have to forgive one another, we start thinking, that's right, you should forgive me, people should forgive me. We don't hear it honestly by the Holy Spirit, the word of God. We reject it. We have to recognize that's what we're doing. We have to learn to talk to ourselves rather than just listen to ourselves. The problems come when we don't heed scripture in this, when we refuse to believe it and just push on as though all our problems are someone else's fault. That, that's, that's the thing. It's interesting. For Timothy, the issue was false teaching and false doctrine and the assaults of that on the church. Today, in large part, churches are threatened and have trouble because people don't like each other. And so we fight and we argue and we hold grudges and we don't forgive and we hate one another and push one another and hurt one another. There's no manual on how to fix that. So the question becomes, what kind of hardship will we deal with? We need to ask the Holy Spirit to make it known to us how we still reject the call of the gospel. How we reject the fact that we're meant to lay our burdens down. That we're meant to stop striving For God's approval, to stop putting unrealistic expectations on each other, to stop refusing to forgive each other or to understand each other. Because these are the very areas, these idols of self that we still cling to, that will make us push back against the gospel as it begins to invade our hearts and our churches to establish the dominance that Jesus Christ has over all of us, whether we admit that he has it or not. Paul's commission lets us know that the issue of gospel centrality and the resistance of that is never going away in the church. Look at how the call to be strengthened by grace here flows into very naturally the necessity of entrusting this message to even more men 
who will be able to faithfully proclaim it also in verse 2. And what you have heard from me, that is, the pattern of sound words, the testimony about our Lord back in one eight and one thirteen. what you've heard from me, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, just like Timothy does, as Paul has done with Timothy. So the preaching elder is responsible to identify other men who have the faithfulness and ability to also proclaim the truth. Paul is making provision here for the ongoing preservation of the gospel in and for the church. Paul is telling Timothy about the ongoing need to identify and install faithful elders. That's why he uses those words, faithful men who are able to teach. Remember, that recalls word for word the qualifications for elders back in 1 Timothy 3, 2. So we're getting more insight into the composition of eldership. The preaching elder, Timothy here, identifies potential elders and then trains them for faithfulness in Ministry. We find out in Titus that he will appoint these men to the office of elder. Paul is also implying then how important it is that Timothy find other men who can help him shepherd the flock. God has designed that the preaching elder cannot serve in that capacity alone, at least not faithfully over time. It's, it's too difficult to do that. And the calling of Scripture means the deacons can't help with that Task. Well-meaning individuals and friends in the congregation can't help with that task. The preaching elder needs more elders, specifically, in order to preserve and safeguard the deposit. Faithful men who are able to teach others also. So, notice what the burden of teaching is in the church. This is important. It's to have the ability and the faithfulness to teach the correct content. Not just to do the activity of teaching. Paul isn't looking for volunteers here. The burden is not, the burden of leadership is not to find people to fill spots and and do work that we've arbitrarily created. And the flesh will, in other words, the priority in teaching is content, not activity. That's an unbiblical way of thinking that leads to division and disorganization in the church, the, the disorganization that we just create these spots and we have to keep them filled and keep classes going and keep things busy. The priority in teaching is not activity. It's content. It's what's being taught. In other words, better to have, if that was a problem, less classes with proper content than tons of classes with who knows what content just because you got to keep busy. you got to have an activity. you got to have something going on. Now, the flesh is going to push back against that, isn't it? It's going to push back against that. We'll resist that because we tend to think we know what people need better than the Bible does. And and so often our priority is just for keeping people in the church, keep the numbers up. And so the accuracy of content, that becomes, a, it, it, it's kind of a burden. You don't really want to mess with that or deal with that. And so content is too easily sacrificed on the altar of activity and numbers Beloved, the biblical priority in teaching is content. Never compromise content for numbers and activity. The church does not exist to fulfill people's personal needs to be doing something. Right? We we don't exist to validate whatever someone else wants to call ministry. That's not what the church is. We exist to faithfully proclaim the gospel and guard its content at all costs, even apparently personal costs. The teaching ministry of the church rests in the hands of the elders. And notice also, this is 
a major issue. The assumption here is that the training of ministers for the church is to be undertaken by the church, not something outside of it. Instead of preachers just saying they have a call and then leaving the local church to pursue that dream, although seminary can be very helpful, what happens biblically is that the church first identifies such men and then trains such men for the office. Paul is telling him, Timothy, protect what's been entrusted to you with grace and protect what's been entrusted to you with delegation. Paul's desire was to keep adding links to the chain of the truth so it never ended. And our calling has not changed. Trust the message. He's telling him, trust the message. Pick it up in verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's the theme. That's the verse of Second Timothy. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Timothy must also protect what's been entrusted to him by being willing to join others like Paul in suffering for it. It's unavoidable. Good soldiers, faithful ones, suffer in ministry. And the reason that's unavoidable is because of what the gospel actually is. There's no more subversive or threatening message to human hearts, to our desire to rule and control. There's no more subversive or threatening message to the kingdom of human beings or of the devil than the gospel. No more threatening message. What this means is that if that message then is consistently proclaimed clearly and faithfully, suffering for it cannot be avoided. That's why Timothy is suffering. That's why he's ready to quit. That's why I think as you come to the end of this section, he's almost lost his faith entirely. Because he's so committed to the message and proclaiming it. Where the flesh has settled in among a people, beloved, the gospel will divide a church before it unites it. There will be fallout and shrapnel before there is peace and harmony. When the kingdom of Jesus actually begins to stake its claim visibly on a church and on a people. This is what you see in Laodicea in Revelation. The verse that we use for like invitations, which is ripping it out of context. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any would, Jesus is saying to the Laodicean church, do you think I can come in? The one that owns this place and is the Lord of it. Can I come into my own house? Will you let me in? It's an indictment. It's an indictment. And when Jesus begins to do that in a church, there will be fallout. There will be shrapnel because he owns everything. And these are his people. A man said to me once in Brawley in California, he said, sometimes you have to preach a church empty before you can preach it full. Nobody wants that to happen. The question here is, can the preacher stay faithful in the fallout that comes as a result of the gospel? That's the question Paul is asking. So if you notice that, it's, it's another reason for the necessity of plural eldership. This is what the Bible is telling us. Two are better than one. 
because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, 10, and 12. A single cord then, as Paul is telling Timothy here, is on borrowed time. A single cord won't last. And the gospel is too important for the minister not to last. For the proclamation of the gospel not to last. So Paul likens faithful ministry to three things in verses 4 to 6. A focused soldier, a rule conscious athlete, and a successful farmer. The fact that the Christian life is all grace then doesn't mean that the Christian life is easy. So another thing grace provides in the life of the minister apparently is discipline. Good soldiers are focused, right? They're not distracted by things that aren't related to the cause. They stick to the marching orders from the one who enlisted them. They don't come up with their own ideas. They don't go off on their own missions that are self-serving. They don't question what they hear. It's, it's, it's not that civilian pursuits are necessarily evil. It's that civilian pursuits are not what a soldier enlists to pursue. Paul is telling him, beloved, anything that will distract the minister from the centrality of the gospel with which he's been entrusted by the one who enlisted him to preach it, cannot be allowed to do so. He can't become distracted. He cannot fight for other kingdoms. He cannot pursue other causes. His task, his message, his message, his calling is the gospel. And the gospel is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and accomplish salvation for all who believe on him through his life, death, and resurrection. That is the task. That's the only task for which we've been Enlisted. Those are the marching orders. That is his pursuit. Truly victorious athletes in verse 5 are those that train so hard they don't have to cheat to win, is what Paul is saying. The minister then has to study and devote himself to the truth to such a degree that he doesn't need to cut corners to be faithful in ministry. He must be committed to the gospel rather than cheap and silly theology so that his prizes, his harvest, if you will, are adoring fans and the approval of the world and all these things. It's hard-working farmers in verse 6 that enjoy the success and benefits of a good harvest. And so, as Doug Wilson says, the faithful minister is focused like a good soldier is, rule-conscious like a good athlete is, and enjoys the harvest as a good farmer does. And then you have that verse 7. Think over what I say for... The Lord will give you understanding in everything. That's an amazing verse. That's an amazing verse. If, if, if we search for the truth and meaning of scripture by thinking that it just falls magically into our laps or by osmosis, we're mistaken. Right? Personal revelations are not God's standard way, at least, of revealing his truth to us. Do you know how God does that for the preacher, the Bible says? By making him think. The mind is created by God. It can be deceived, yes. It should be questioned, yes. But everything God created is good. And so the means of understanding scriptural truth for the sake of preaching is the grace from God that drives focused thought about the text. God grants divine understanding through our thinking. The preacher doesn't sit around then and wait 
for impressions or feelings and then get something and then find a verse that halfway seems to support it and then talk about what he thinks forever how long. No, the the, the preacher thinks, he studies, he works until the meaning of the text becomes the meaning of the sermon. Ideally, remember 1 Timothy 5.17, look down at chapter 2 verse 15 here, which has a context. And through that means, the labor in thought and study, God gives him the understanding of the text. So understanding does not come about through sanctified laziness, right? I'm, I'm far too spiritual to waste my time studying, right? You ever hear people talk about, I, I don't, I don't study. I just preach whatever the Lord lays on my heart. Okay. Right. Well, apparently the Lord lays his word on the heart to the degree that you're thinking about it and studying it, right? It doesn't just drop out of the sky. I've never looked in the mirror after a shower and what I'm supposed to preach is written in the fog on the screen. That's never happened. It, that would be great if it did. It's, it's, it's never happened. That, that type of thinking then that, that where thought and, and work like that are set aside is a plague on the church. It's working against what Paul wants to preserve here and why churches can be so far led astray. Faithful ministers have to think about the text so that what they bring you and what shapes the church is God's word, not the preacher's. In other words, Timothy and every preacher, the more you think about the things that have been revealed, the more understanding you're going to have is what Paul is Telling him here, this is a call to concern our minds above all else with the deposit. That testimony, that pattern of sound words. All Paul talks about is what Timothy has already heard from him. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. This comes right after the call to think. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering Bound with change as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Remember Jesus Christ, Timothy. In other words, do you want to know what to think over exactly? Jesus. And don't just think about the name. Think about his work. When you think on Jesus, you think on what he has accomplished. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Paul references the fact that Jesus didn't come back from the dead like magic because he was God, right? Like he wasn't really dead, and so he just kind of came out of the tomb because of course he could, he's God. He rose again as the offspring and seed of a man named David. He rose from the dead as a human being. Yes, Jesus is fully God, no question. But it was Jesus in his humanity that died. And as the true and obedient man... God raised him again to new life. The promise that we will be resurrected then is for human beings, beloved. It's for us. That's what Paul preaches in his gospel, this crazy idea. The resurrection of the whole human race one day, which is what the resurrection of Jesus foreshadowed. When Paul preaches that crazy idea, he gets into trouble for it. This is precisely the message for which he's suffering in verse 9. The gospel of the true man God raised from the dead, who, because he was also descended from David, is a true man. Paul literally believes that Jesus came back from the grave. And the reason Paul is chained up for that like he's some kind of criminal 
is because that idea and that message are a crime to humanity. The world, because of that, because they think it's an outlaw message, uses things like chains and bondage, crucifixion to silence threats. The world uses death. The world uses the threat of death to control people. But the one God raised from the dead told us not to fear those that can kill the body. Do not fear men. Why? Because the word of this God is not bound. The messengers might be bound. The message cannot be bound. The word of God centers on the resurrection, which is proof, proof that no force of will from humanity can silence the truth. Eternal life cannot be threatened by physical death. Physical death, however, is destroyed by eternal life. Remember what Jesus has done in chapter 1, verse 10. Brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through this message. Beloved, the gospel is hated because it proclaims that the world as it is, is doomed and can't do anything about it. The resurrection of Jesus we proclaim in this gospel means that the day is coming when even the dead will hear the word of Jesus and rise up to face their creator. The gospel means that everything about God and what he says about the world are irrevocably true and we will give an account. The gospel means that no human being is good enough to earn his or her salvation and so God rejects even the best of our works and our effort as filthy rags. The gospel means that the only king of the world is Jesus Christ, God's son, and therefore no challenger can unseat him or dethrone him. The gospel means that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and every other worldview is false, if not ridiculously superficial. This is why its ministers will suffer. Because the gospel means that good works not only won't obtain salvation, but won't sustain salvation either. It's all Jesus then. And his verdict on us, the reason that he died, is that we aren't good enough, and we still in many ways, even in the church, quietly begrudge him for it. We have to put in something. We have to pay a little bit. We have to try. But the word of God and our insistence that it not say what it says will not change the word of God. It's not bound by anyone or anything inside or outside the church. It stands. It silences everybody. It can't be stopped. It can't be changed. No matter what happens to the ones who speak it, God will just raise up more that speak it. That's why. Well, you can't flip your pages correctly like me. But that's why Paul is trying to tell Timothy and us that this message is so valuable, it's so true, it's so eternal and fixed, it's worth then whatever trouble it brings. That's what Paul is trying to tell his beloved child here. Listen, look at what this message is. Timothy, it's worth it. It's worth whatever it costs. So remember Jesus Christ. This is the preacher's and the Christian's most important charge. It's our only hope, the essential memory of Jesus himself, whose word cannot be chained. Therefore, in verse 10, Paul writes, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's never wise to demonize biblical truth, to demonize biblical doctrines, because at some point in the life of faith, you're going to need each one of them, including the difficult doctrine of election that Paul references here. Paul was talking about predestination and those things long before a guy named John Calvin was in the 16th century. Paul ministers, as does Timothy and every preacher since, for the sake of the elect. You don't use that word to say something that everyone is, or there's no need for it. right? You use that word to speak to people being chosen. We can't dive into all the details and implications of such a complex thing this morning, but that's the word the Holy Spirit inspired, elect. And it has a meaning. To use the word elect means we're talking about people that have been chosen by someone else. That's the way election works, right? The, the, the media, for example, right now doesn't elect the president because a candidate says, I've been elected. That's not what election is. You don't get to declare yourself elected. It's not even what it means. That's not how election works. To be elected is to be chosen by someone else. And that's what Christians are in the Bible. Elect. That's the Holy Spirit's word for them. God chose them. Paul brings in that word here, even with all of its baggage to our minds, as a balm to encourage and sustain Timothy's soul and ours. We are God's elect, which means he has chosen us and adopted us, foreknown and predestined us, Paul writes elsewhere, to be glorified but first conformed to the image of his son in Romans 8. And notice this, the truth of election that God has chosen us doesn't make Paul fatalistic. Notice that. It doesn't make him throw his hands in the air and say, well, nothing matters then. He doesn't do that. What we do with difficult doctrines and trash them or try to explain them away until they don't mean anything near what words mean. Just change their meaning so that they sit better with our carnal minds that would dare answer back to God when we read something we don't like. Paul doesn't realize that things like election and God's sovereignty then are in the Bible and say, well, you know, hey, it's all predetermined anyway. Nothing matters. Everything's worthless. Just sit here until you die. It's all been ordained by God. Who cares? No, no, no. We say such foolish things. Not the Bible. Some doctrines in the Bible are hard to understand. But none of them can be thrown in the trash heap because of that. The fact that Christians are God's elect and will therefore reach their destination empowers Paul's message to Timothy. You know how important that is for a minister to hear as he ministers to people? That the elect will obtain salvation no matter what happens to them here? You know how useful that is for a preacher to know for his flock and for himself? That they can't even snatch themselves out of his hand? That might be important for a preacher to know. Paul endures everything he goes through for the sake of the elect so that they may obtain what they've been predestined to obtain, salvation. God uses means 
to bring about his sovereign decrees. That's all we're seeing here. The ordained destination is reached by the ordained road. If the destination for the elect is reigning with God, then the means of getting there is enduring. If the destination is living with God, then the means of getting there is dying with Him. This saying is trustworthy, beloved. Again, this is another one of those sentences, or or, uh, more of the sentences for the church to add to its memory, to think on from the pastoral letters, these trustworthy sayings to live by and to bank on. The God who ordains the harvest has also ordained the planting. The God who ordains salvation for the elect also ordains evangelism as the means of gathering them in, apparently. Election doesn't make Paul shrug his shoulders, does it? It makes him roll up his sleeves for work. I have to endure a life of suffering for the elect. He doesn't cash in his chips and quit because there's such a thing as elect. That word, that truth puts him to work. If Christians have been chosen by God to obtain something, they will obtain it. For his gifts and his callings are irrevocable. Who can resist his will, Paul asks? Who can turn back his sovereign hand? This is for Timothy's soul. What is he doing in 2 Timothy? He's talking to him like like he's his own son. Trying to encourage him and help him. In the midst of suffering, the elect... Your church, Timothy, those Christians in Ephesus will obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory because of who God is. They won't be lost. And the means he uses to get us there, how he guards us for that day, is through faith. When God ordains the ends, God ordains the means. You remember, you see this all the time in the Bible. You remember in the end of Acts, when before the shipwreck, Paul assures them that none of them will be lost. None of them will die. But then when the shipwreck happens, what do they have to do in order to not die? I have, what is they, they can't you know, go too far with the depth or the sounding or something. They have to stay on the ship. They can't jump out of the ship. So what was the means of God making sure no one on the ship died? That none of them left the ship. Right? He ordains ends and he ordains means. And Paul ordains, ever, Paul endures everything for the sake of of the elect. Faith is the means by which the elect make it home. And faith is fueled by nothing but the gospel, the testimony of our Lord. So therefore, Timothy, buckle down in his proclamation and don't be distracted by anything else. Don't give up the best for what's simply good. Right? Don't give up what's ultimate for what is simply important. I want you to stay fixed on the pattern, trust the message, suffer with me, because in the end, God wins, which means we win also. Again, I think Timothy had almost lost his faith entirely by the time this letter reached him, just by what Paul says and how he talks. But Timothy hasn't denied the Lord. It's not that. If someone does that, it means they weren't elect because God will deny them, and God would never deny his true sheep. He's already said that. Why? Well, because God can't deny himself in verse 13. Beloved, that's the truth that holds up the entirety of the Christian faith. You want to know in one sentence why you and I will be saved? Because God can't deny himself and his promise. If he has made a promise, it will be kept. That's why God is faithful even to the faithless. 
like Timothy, might be becoming in verse 13. It's just what God is like. The preceding statement or stanza was a warning in verse 12. If we deny him, he denies us. This in verse 13 is a promise because, again, I think Timothy is lapsing. What God is, God always is. We are not always ourselves, but God is always himself. There are just some impossibilities that must go with being absolutely magnificent, right? As God is. And one is that God cannot be untrue to his own nature, right? He'll never lapse. He'll never falter or slip or sleep or change. So faithlessness is different than denial. Denial is a rejection of the truth. Faithlessness is a rejection of our own ability to believe and keep it. And beloved, when the reeds are bruised at that point, God will not abandon his precious child. Let us all hear that and not just the preachers. If God were faithless to struggling sinners, he wouldn't be denying them. He'd be denying himself. And God cannot do that. He will never leave or forsake us despite any faithlessness we experience. So don't let go in the darkness of suffering. God hasn't moved. It's just that sometimes we can't see. There's nothing but a call to remember what is true. Remember the gospel. Remember the power of God. Remember his unchanging character. Remember his word. This is the hope of God's servants in suffering is remembering who God is as he has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Beloved, do we see that? Why is the gospel so massive? Because if we can't see that, we can't see God. That's where he is now. We have nothing to hold up our souls if we forget about the living and dying and rising of Jesus for us. Nothing to hold us up. God now resides in this body of truth in his son. That's where all his fullness now is pleased to dwell. The gospel is where God is seen and heard and accessed. That's where all of our thinking has to be on Jesus who's revealed in this truth. Suffering cannot be avoided in this world. It can't be avoided. And we have to learn to suppress the demand of our flesh that a hard life is not worth living. We have to suppress and reject the demand that our flesh has that what it costs is not worth what is received. Humanity and creation are cursed, beloved. Now, we understand through Scripture that that doesn't mean we cash in our chips and don't care about humanity or the world, not at all, or that we never act to help or to mend because it's cursed and who cares? That's not the point of hearing it's a curse. The point of hearing it is that we learn not to expect this world to yield perfection or satisfaction or completion to us or anyone else. What we do believe is that suffering does not mean God isn't in control or that God doesn't care. Suffering means that we still reject his truth, that that's what's happening, which is why it has to be guarded so passionately by faithful ministers. Suffering isn't a reason to doubt that God is there. 
It's a reason to believe his word must be so true that the rejection of it is the cause of suffering in one way or the other. But standing over all suffering and every cause of it is a God whose character is unchanging. You see, that's what Paul puts in front of Timothy. He doesn't turn him inward. He turns him upward. A God whose promises stand and will not fail. A God whose pattern and purpose are simply unstoppable. Whose son is risen from the dead and will one day end this curse. Standing over all our suffering and every cause of it is a God who has said his people will obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Beloved, remember who God is. Remember who he is and what he is like and what he has done. And when you forget, when you need to know, you go to his word to discover it. And you think and you focus on it. And you mull him over in your head. The struggling minister has no other hope. No other source of life or motivation. No other anchor. Neither does any believer. Neither do any of us. Fixing our minds on who God is and what he has done in Christ. Is the means by which he sustains us through suffering. And will one day grant us eternal life. Beloved, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Remember Him. Remember Him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful together for Your perfect Word. Lord, I thank You for Your grace. I thank You for Your Son. And Lord, I ask that as we leave this place that you would truly fix our minds on him. As we reflect on this passage and the reality of suffering and hardship, that we would not be disheartened, that we would not forget who you are and what the path home looks like and what is waiting at the end. Watch over us, Father. Watch over our souls. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for the coming week and always. Amen. Amen.